Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. What would you do to survive? Most of us believe there are some things we would never do, even if they could save our lives. However, until we find ourselves in a life and death situation, we can never know how far we might go for self-preservation. The maroon survivors from the James Allen did not hesitate to do what they felt was necessary to prolong their lives. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting to you from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. On April 14, 1894, Captain Arthur Huntley and his crew departed San Francisco on the James Allen. They were headed to the Arctic for two years, where they planned to hunt bowhead whales off Point Barrow. They hoped to bring back several barrels of whale oil and valuable baleen. Whale oil was used primarily as a lubricant for machinery before the development of petroleum-based lubricants. Baleen from the mouths of the baleen whales was used to manufacture materials requiring light but strong supports. Umbrellas, women's corsets, petticoats, buggy whips, and collar stiffeners were all often made from baleen. Synthetic materials would soon replace baleen, but in 1894, baleen was still valuable. The 117-foot-long James Allen was a typical whaling bark. A bark is a ship with three or more masts, with single sails on the fore and aft masts, and square sails on all other masts. The configuration of the ship's rigging allowed it to sail with a smaller crew. A bark was built for stability, not speed. Captain Huntley planned to hunt whales during the summer and fall of 1894, and then he and his crew of 49 men would overwinter at Herschel Island in Canada, a popular wintering spot for whalers. Unfortunately, the James Allen never made it to Herschel Island. A little over a month into its voyage, on May 11th, 1894, the captain steered the ship toward Amukta Pass, a 43-mile gap between the Aleutian Islands of Siguam and Amukta. The pass was often used by whalers who nicknamed it the 72 Pass because the 172-degree longitudinal line runs through it. Once the ship made it through this pass, it would have clear sailing to the edge of the ice pack. 
The Aleutian Islands of western Alaska are not known for their good weather, and conditions on May 11, 1894, were terrible. A gale carried the ship through heavy fog and rain toward 72 Pass. Today, ship's captains depend on the radar and GPS under such conditions. However, even with modern-day electronics, most captains still proceed cautiously in high winds and reduce visibility. In 1894, sailors used dead reckoning to stay on course. Dead reckoning requires a sailor to use a known position to maintain a course, and it usually does not factor in the effects of current and wind. Captain Huntley had last plotted the position of the James Allen from a celestial sighting five days earlier. Since then, the ship had sailed through fog, and the captain had not been able to get a recent fix. Still, he remained confident of the ship's heading and ordered the crew to proceed at full speed. At midnight, the captain retired to his quarters and turned the helm over to the third mate, Joseph Durardi. Duarte was uncomfortable with the boat's speed under such conditions, but he followed the captain's orders. As a precaution, Duarte doubled the bow watch and climbed the rigging to watch for obstacles. At 1.30 a.m., Duarte sighted a black mass rimmed by frothy white breakers ahead of the ship. He ordered the steersman to turn the boat sharply to port and told a mate to wake the captain and bring him to the helm. The captain said the boat was on the proper course and ordered the steersman to return the ship to its previous course. Duarte insisted that if they continued on the original route, they would wreck on a reef. But the captain said he knew where they were, and if they followed his course, they would sail safely through the 72 Pass. Duarte followed the captain's orders, and a short while later, the James Allen crashed into Agladak Island Reef, off the east end of Amlia Island. The ship pounded on the rocks until a large wave carried it over the reef into the calmer, deeper water between the reef and Amlia Island. Agladak Island Reef lies 30 miles west of where Captain Huntley thought they were. The James Allen began to sink rapidly. Most of the crew were jolted awake when the ship hit the reef, and many rushed from their bunks without even having time to put on a coat or shoes. The men lowered the five whale boats, but only two of the small boats had escaped damage from the wreck. Once they were in the water, two of the whale boats became separated from the other three. One was the boat carrying Joseph Girardi and seven other crewmen. The other boat held the first and second mates and nine other crew. This second boat was the only boat with a full complement of oars, spars, and sails. Plus, the crew of this boat had a compass and chart. Girardi's boat was damaged, so he turned west and landed on Amlia Island's southern coast. The boat holding the first and second mate headed toward Unalaska Island. Captain Huntley and three crewmen escaped the sinking James Allen in a badly damaged whaleboat, and they bailed the boat all night until they finally reached the northern shore of Amlia Island. The two remaining boats soon landed at the same spot, making a group of 26 men. 
Girardi and his group remained on the southern end of Amelia Island for a week and then carefully navigated their damaged boat around the south coast to the western end of the island. Then they continued east for three days, skirting Amelia's northern coast and through 18 miles of open ocean before reaching Seguam Island. They believed they would have to travel to the settlement on Alaska to find help. But on Seguam, they met five Aleut hunters who fed the men and took them to their village of Nazan on Atka Island, west of Amlia. On Atka, the Alaska Commercial Company's resident agent cared for the men until he could transfer them to the company's steamer, Dora. The men were then transferred to the Navy's USS Petrel, a vessel attached to the Bering Sea Fleet. When the captain of the Petrel learned of the sinking of the James Allen, he immediately sailed to the wreck site and spent two days searching for survivors. When he found none, he assumed that the eight crewmen he had on board were the only survivors from the disaster. Girardi and his crew were finally delivered to Dutch Harbor, where five booked passage south and three took jobs with the North American Commercial Company at Dutch Harbor. Let me take a short break. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I write both fiction and nonfiction books. The following is an excerpt from my latest Alaska wilderness mystery novel, Massacre at Bear Creek Lodge. Sarah warily stepped into the small cabin. She pulled her gun from her holster, on high alert for an ambush. She took in the small kitchen with one glance, but she saw no place for someone to hide in the tiny alcove. She looked up as she entered the main room. The darkened loft concerned her. She listened, but heard no sounds. Her eyes dropped to the main room, and she slowly scanned the perimeter. When she reached the table and chairs to her left, the gun began shaking in her hand, and she quickly backed out of the room. Sarah forced herself to breathe evenly for several seconds. She should have brought another trooper with her to Sam's cabin. You can do this. You're an Alaska state trooper. She holstered her revolver and returned to the main room of the cabin. She approached the man slumped in the chair next to the table. She donned her nitrile gloves and knelt on the floor in front of the body. The man, she assumed was Sam Lutz, had been shot once in the middle of the forehead. The gunshot stippling around the wound suggested someone shot him at close range. Sarah might have suspected suicide, but she saw no weapon near the body. And with this wound, Sam must have died instantly. He certainly didn't have time to shoot himself, hide the gun, and sit back down to die. I have links to my books in the show notes. They are available online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, and other booksellers. Meanwhile, Captain Huntley and the remaining 25 survivors left their camp on the northern shore of Amlia Island on May 16th, five days after the James Allen sank. On May 18th, the three boats reached a group of islands known as the Islands of the Four Mountains. They were now 130 miles east of where the James Allen went down 
and 160 miles west of Unalaska, their final destination. Due to the high surf, the men had to wait until the following day to go ashore. By then, one of the men had died from hunger and exposure. The men left the most severely damaged boat on shore, and the remaining 25 continued in two boats. That afternoon, the captain's boat capsized. The captain survived, but four of his crew drowned. Now the survivors had only one boat for 21 men. The men landed on Umnak Island on May 19th, where three more died from exposure. Captain Huntley decided that the best plan would be to leave the weakest men in the camp on Umnak Island, while he and a group of the stronger men pushed toward Unalaska to get help. On May 20th, Huntley and six crewmen attempted to leave the camp, but a storm forced them back ashore. They learned that two more men had died when they arrived back in camp. The men in the camp found an abandoned Barabara, a traditional Aleut semi-subterranean dwelling used as a shelter. Inside the Barabara, they found two rusty tin pails, and from the wire bales on the pails, they fashioned fish hooks. Unfortunately, the weather was too stormy to take the boat out fishing. Instead, the men ate mussels and kelp they found on the shore. Huntley and his chosen crew of six men finally set off on their voyage on June 5th. He promised the men in the camp that he would return with help in nine days. Huntley and his crew fought through heavy seas for over a week before reaching Unalaska. During that time, they stopped periodically at various islands in the Aleutian chain and ate mussels, seaweed, and grass. When they stepped ashore on Unalaska, they were weak and exhausted. Huntley and his men were immediately taken to the Revenue Cutter Bear, captained by Michael A. Healy, one of the most prominent figures in Alaska's history. The U.S. Treasury Department's Revenue Cutter Service was a predecessor to the U.S. Coast Guard. As soon as Captain Healy heard about the stranded and starving men left on Umnak Island, he ordered his crew to prepare for cutter duty. While Huntley's crew headed to Unalaska, the men on Umnak hovered near death. At first, they ate mussels from the beach, but soon they depleted the supply of mussels within easy reach, and they were forced to hike further and further to find mussel beds. Before long, they were exerting more energy searching for mussels than the mussels could provide. Seaweed and grass could not sustain them. They had the fish hooks, but without a boat, they could only cast their lines from shore, where the hooks snagged on the rocks. The men on Umnak also had a shotgun, but the wary seagulls stayed too far away to shoot. The roof of the Barabara leaked in the constant rain, and Austin Gideon died from hypothermia on June 7th. Accounts about what happened next vary. The men dragged Gideon's body out of the Barabara, but were too weak to bury him. Within hours, Gideon began to look less like their dear friend and comrade and more like a chunk of meat. The men stripped the flesh from Gideon's bones and boiled the meat. 
Once they had consumed Gideon, they dug up the body of Joseph Pina, buried two weeks earlier, and began eating him. The bear steamed toward Umnak Island, fighting gales and rough seas. They reached the island on June 14th, one day later than the nine days Huntley had promised the men it would take him to return. The landing party, including Huntley, went ashore to rescue the survivors. What they found in the small Barabara horrified them. When the men saw their rescuers, they gave a feeble cheer and began laughing and crying. They readily admitted that they had become cannibals during Huntley's absence. Dr. White on the bear said they were the worst set of men I ever saw, mostly filthy, low, and degraded. Healy criticized the survivors in his report to the Treasury Department. He said that although he recognized the men were completely demoralized by their condition and had given up hope of ever being rescued, they should still be held responsible for their actions. He said they made little effort to hunt and did not even set up a mark on a bluff to attract the attention of passing ships. He also criticized them for not maintaining a watch for passing vessels. Healy said, when found, they lay around the fire in the hunt, doing nothing, looking at each other, with the blood of their shipmates on their hands and faces. The stranded men had no idea they were within six miles of a small Aleut village. News of the wrecked whaling ship, followed by embellished tales of cannibalism, spread to San Francisco and beyond. The bear returned to Unalaska, and after providing the men with essential medical treatment and hot baths, Healy secured passage for them to San Francisco on the steamer Crescent City. The press eagerly met the ship and pushed for details about the acts of cannibalism. The sailors remained unapologetic and recounted their suffering and why they'd felt forced to eat their fallen comrades to survive. Meanwhile, the best outfitted whaleboat to depart the sinking James Allen was still missing. What happened to the boat carrying the first and second mate and nine others? This boat was undamaged and took a full complement of oars, spars, and sails, plus a compass and chart. It had immediately headed east from the shipwreck, and the other men assumed it was going straight to Unalaska. When Captain Huntley and his group reached Unalaska, they were surprised to learn that the first and second mates and their crew had yet to arrive. The men in the captain's boat sighted the whaleboat in question several times in the days after they'd escaped the James Allen. When they last saw it, the boat was north of Amelia Island. While Captain Healy on the Bear rescued the men shipwrecked on Umnak Island, Lieutenant Commander Drake with the U.S. Navy sailed the Albatross from Dutch Harbor in search of the missing boat. The Albatross spent two days carefully inspecting Unalaska's long northern coast and then cruised along the shores of Umnak and Seaguam Islands. A landing crew from the Albatross talked to the Aleut hunters on Atka, but they had no information about the missing boat. Other ships joined the search and continued to look for the missing whaleboat through July, but no trace of it was ever found.
In the aftermath of the James Allen disaster, the press and public hailed Captain Huntley as a hero because he was the last man to leave the deck of the sinking ship. No one mentioned that Huntley's carelessness had caused the ship to hit the rock in the first place. Huntley had experienced a string of maritime mishaps. When his ship, the Hunter, ran aground in Plover Bay, Siberia, W.F. Allen, the sailor who kept the ship's log, wrote about the grounding and said, What is the reason? Nothing but rum. He said Captain Huntley was drunk again. At one point in their voyage, Allen reported that the captain had been drunk for three days. He noted two gallons lasted him most of two days and one night. He said that when Huntley drank, he became overconfident in his abilities. No one from the James Allen publicly accused Captain Huntley of being drunk when the boat hit the reef, but he mistakenly seemed overconfident about their position and course. The detailed records of firsthand information regarding the James Allen disaster have provided historians with the most detailed account of any wreck of a whaling vessel in Alaska's waters. Many crewmen fled the ship without having time to grab an oilskin coat or even put on their shoes. Then they had to battle relentless rain and heavy seas. It's a miracle that any of them survived. Under these horrific circumstances, should we forgive the man stranded on Umnak Island for doing the unthinkable to survive? What would you have done? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. If you haven't already done it, be sure to join the Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier Facebook group and chat about the podcast. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.